Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Ruby Rogues. I'm David Kimura, and today on our panel, we have John Epperson. Hello. And we have a special guest, Ian Norris. Hello. Resolve Digital helps build, optimize, and maintain e-commerce, SaaS, and other products built on Ruby on Rails. They can help build new applications from scratch, rescue projects in bad shape, provide ongoing development and maintenance for existing projects, augment your existing team with experienced Rails developers. They also specialize in Solidus and Spree Commerce solutions. Go check them out at resolve.digital. So Ian, can you tell us a bit about yourself and who you work for, what you're doing, and why you're famous and all that good stuff? <laughs> I don't know about famous, but I can talk about the other things. I am a senior software engineer at a backer kit right now, which basically helps out with like crowdfunding platforms, do fulfillment, and been enjoying work. my work there. I actually have a Cats game I've been working on too, where I have a little bit of code for that. And then how I, I guess how I ended up here was I uh, did a lightning talk at RubyConf um, around uh, pair, pair programming and some solutions for the problems that you often see when you're pairing. Cool. Well, I think this could be a great topic because it's something where I think in the past 10 years or 10 years ago, pair programming wasn't even really a thing. It's not something that we thought about. You know, if we had a question, oh, you just go on expert exchange and, you know, you try to find an answer only to not find anything. So you might ask a senior person and then they just shoot you back a book or an article or they just give you the answer. So can you explain what pair programming is and kind of what it looks like? Yeah, so pair programming is when you have like two developers usually um, uh, working together uh, to write code together, actually, like not rather than like, you know, pull requests or like uh, review that code review is like another way of having people check your code. But thing is like you're continuously checking each other's code and writing it together. Usually, preferably with two different, like each person having equal access to the machine. So like two sets of keyboards and two monitors is like an ideal setup, but there are other ways of doing it. And you kind of, take turns using like who somebody's typing and someone else is kind of thinking about what's going on or helping check what you're writing and you're just going back and forth. And there's a bunch of different ways of doing it, but that's kind of like the general gist of it. All right. So in a idealistic world, how would, how would that really play out? So would you have both people typing at the same time or just one person type at a time? Because I know... For example, with a lot of editors nowadays with VS Code, mm-hmm. with Atom, they have a pair session where you can actually be working off of your own computer with your own extensions. So if you prefer Vim shortcuts, but someone else prefers Sublime Text shortcuts, you can still use all of those, but then you're still kind of sharing the same session, the same code base. That is interesting because I, th- I think... If you can get that kind of scenario to work well, I think that that would be kind of an interesting way to go about it. Because oftentimes, at least in, when I've been pairing, you kind of just have to settle on having the same environment in the same set. Like, except we're all using Ruby Mine. It's like no nobody's using Vim. But it would be that's kind of cool if you can get when you, if you can get that kind of scenario where you can share between the different monitors or the different machines. I think really what's important is just yeah equal access. So like because like you're right, you're not going to want to type at the same time because that's kind of too much noise, but being able to, uh, I think something ideal about it is being able to know when, yeah, when you're well, like, okay, it's time, time I need, to, I'm going to go ahead and drive now. I'm going to go ahead and like be the one that's kind of typing and thinking about like the nitty gritty of what's going on versus I'm going to actually, I'm going to be the one to take a step back and let, let the other person try and solve things for a bit. I think kind of helps like, having an established back and forth because I think probably like most where it's not great is where like you have somebody kind of hogging the machine and like 
doing all the work basically or trying to do all the work uh, not real maybe not even realizing that's what they're doing and so being able to have that back and forth cadence in some fashion is kind of where i think it's ideal and so, if that involves bindings that would be great but sometimes that's not always possible so you've been doing this for a long time you say you say that you've been doing it like most of your career according to your talk yeah have you always done it the same way? I mean, I assume that you've experienced multiple kinds of pair programming. I myself have done some over the years, right? And I highly value it as a tool in my chest. It's not my primary technique, right? Mm-hmm. I, I assume that you've you've experienced like a lot of bad and good things. Like, can you talk through like different things that you've encountered? And like, how are they different from this ideal, right? So like I started at ThoughtWorks and we're basically like XP and Agile and like pair programming were kind of like the bread and butter of, of like ThoughtWorks. There, I kind of got experiences, like kind of some good experiences about like what I, what ideal scenarios were when I was starting out training. And then, but then going into like the consultancy world, right? You're, you're trying to get people to think about pair programming that are level up developers who haven't, that don't necessarily want to be brought along that journey. I've definitely seen examples of like that they don't, like they're not contributing anything or they're being very resistant and like, only wanting to like taking control of the machine and not giving the person space to type. Oftentimes something I've seen is like senior developers not giving junior developers the space to actually code things out. There was, there was one example where I was working at another, another health, a healthcare company and uh, I was like, oh, I love this developer. I love pairing with him. Like he, I learned so much from him. And then I would like talk to other junior developers on the team and they were terrified of pairing with him because they would, he would just kind of bowl over them and not like I would be debating with him and working, like trying to learn from him, but other people I think didn't see that they had that space and had a terrible experience. And in contrast, and definitely yeah. uh, like the senior junior dynamic is something you kind of have to watch out for, where I think that can lead to a bad experience. And also, if you don't have like the right remote setup, it can be really obnoxious to try and do remote pairing, especially like if you're you trying like doing sessions over Zoom. I've I've not enjoyed that experience or similar like. Uh, Tuple, I think, is kind of where um, things are a lot, a lot better. That's what we do because we have one fully remote dev on my, my current team at Backerkit. That's actually been working pretty smoothly because it's like basically the old screen hero or the new screen hero, I mean. Yeah, I've heard a lot in recent weeks about Tuple. And let me think of some other, some, some other stories that um, like uh, uh, other non-ideals, I think, I, I, at least a personal struggle for me has been around like, like eight, CSS and HTML. And when you're pairing... Like, because if you're doing, because like I've only been in full-time pairing shops and that can be kind of like when you're doing like some more nitty gritty things or things that are a little more rote, because like not all code, not all coder writing is like, you know, the nice, nice, shiny new thing. I I had a situation where I just asked the pair, asked the pair, the pair very clearly cared about like proper CSS styling and having like like the the design look as close as possible. And I'm like, I'm I'm like 80% of the way there. That's good enough. And I'm going to move on. And so the tension of just bit like, hey, I'm going to go check out for a bit. You can go, you can finish this out, but I'm not, not in the headspace for it. It's just kind of interesting to think about that as a, another like a non-ideal scenario where if, like somebody is having trouble following along, they can often check out. That makes a lot yeah. of sense. So I'd like to take a step back and just kind of discuss some of the advantages over pair programming versus the traditional way of each person works on their own story. Can you talk to that a bit, Ian? Yeah, so I think some of the advantages is like there's a lot less need for code review because you're kind of code reviewing all the time. And so you're not kind of like block. Oftentimes, like if, I ha- if I've had to solo, I've kind of been annoyed by the fact that 
I have to kind of follow up with developers and chase them down because, like, right, they want to be doing work. They don't want to have to be reviewing other people's work. They're wanting to just do their own code. And when you're pairing, you have less of that concern because you always have two people reviewing each piece of, each piece of code you're shipping. And, and another thing I really like is with regards to it stops because it, everyone has their own different like a perspective on how they're coming across code. But be that like I'm gonna like try and craft the perfect piece of code and ship it out versus like I'm just gonna bang out this you know the simplest thing that works and just ship it out and it might not be it might be some a pain to refactor later. And uh, you can kind of balance those tensions with like having a pair because if if you're somebody that likes to like spend their time writing the perfect piece of code, you have to be able to convince the other person that this is the necessary thing to do at the time, and vice versa. And so, like having having that kind, it's kind of adds like an additional checks and balances in terms of keeping on task. And so, how's the efficiency? Because there is a level of throughput with pairing that could either increase or decrease depending on the situation. Yeah, it's interesting because oftentimes that's like a misconception. I think that like oh, like you know. If you, you're putting two developers instead of one, so really if I split those two developers up, I get twice as much work done. That might be tr- technically true at the be- like beginning or if you're like, or if the tasks are really like basic and mundane, perhaps that could be true. But as, as you're developing more complex software and you're adding stuff, like, and oftentimes, right, so developers are working with like code that they haven't written before. Or they haven't fully written all of it. They've only written part of it and they're contributing or tweaking or augmenting it. And those kind of situations, it's, it's, I feel like that's where you actually get a lot faster with pair programming because you can A, bring other people, like somebody, instead of one person having not that knowledge of that part of the code base, everyone kind of gets knowledge of that part of the code base because you're kind of having to share it between people and having different people, like different pair, especially as you start rotating frequently, then you can kind of get different people's knowledge split across the team. And also just, yeah, the leveling up capacity of to being able to pair a senior with a junior dev really just helps people become more able to do tasks on their own than they would before. Yeah. So let's take a scenario where you have a product and you have 10 developers on this product. You have five seniors and maybe five juniors and none of the 10 people have ever seen the code before. And you're always pairing a senior developer with a junior developer rotating in and out each day. So I think initially, as you go through your backlog of stories, bug fixes, new features, you're going to get a lot of benefit from pair programming. You're basically creating a sea of knowledge wealth between everyone equally that are, you know, at least those that are grasping the concepts. And so I think that pair programming can be a huge payoff. But what about a situation where you have these same five developers and five juniors maybe on a program that now they've been working on this for two or three years. So everyone has this same shared knowledge about the application and what to do. Then is it time to step back from pair programming and to go back to the more traditional code reviews at the end of a story completion? I don't necessarily think so. And the reason why I would argue for that is when you're soloing, you still need to have somebody review your code, right? Like you, you're not going to just like have people just ship code independently and without any kind of review, any kind of review. So you still have the cost, like there's still the cost of reviewing the code. You're just kind of making it a continuous cost as opposed to like a fixed cost at the end of a day or at the end of the week um, kind of thing. And another thing is being able to like, Kind of because des- like designing together, I think is something like you. I 
you have to kind of budget that time for design. And either you're des- designing up front and then hoping that everyone agrees on that shared vision or you're continuously building together. I guess a situation where maybe pairing, I think, might not be as ideal is like if you have a fully remote team, I'm still kind of like feel, have my doubts about whether a fully remote team could really leverage pairing to like the ability where you get enough benefit versus uh, negative. And then also, yeah, if you have like a lot of junior, like if your your junior density is pretty high or in a situation where you're still like needing to do a lot of exploration where like you don't know, where you also are trying to like learn new technologies, learning new technologies tends to not be a great thing to do while pairing because you're like, you know, trying to read documentation together. It's not really something I consider ideal. So assuming that I buy into pair programming as being awesome. Can you talk about maybe what it looks like or or how I can get off the rails, like go to a bad path, right? And maybe what the good path looks more like. Can you distinguish a little bit there? Maybe maybe let's start with the bad path first. Like what are some things that I can do that, that'll make me give up on it? I, I think some things that often uh, cause yeah, people to give up, give up on it is if you're in a situation where only one person can really have access to the machine or if you're like, yeah, like if you're like sharing a laptop or otherwise in a scenario where it facilitates one person hogging the computer, oftentimes you can kind of feel like you're a backseat driver rather than like a driver navigator. And I think that kind of uh, contributes a lot to people not wanting to pair. I think another thing is not being heard in the conversation. Having the space to be able to give feedback to your pair is kind of important. And if you're not in in an environment, work environment where that's possible, I don't think that pairing would be a good place for that environment. Because being able to correct through feedback is kind of like a really critical thing. That also is another reason why I would say pairing, like in that 5-5 five, that five, five situation, you would still want it because you would get that feedback more continuously. By correcting through feedback, do you mean like, because I'm hogging the computer, you need to give me feedback on that? Or do you mean feedback yeah, on my so code like, itself or both? Both, I think. One great example is I, I definitely had the hogging computer problem for a bit. And I had a junior and a junior I was working with actually would just hand over the dog. Like she had a dog with her and she would just hand the dog, be like, pet the dog, Ian. And that was kind of like a reminder to like, okay, like let's take a step back and let, like, even though it's like, it can be a real struggle to want to finish, like, you know what the, how to solve the problem and you're waiting for the other person to figure it out. Being able to give the juniors that space is a really uh, critical thing. Can you talk through that specifically a little bit more? It comes a lot with one fascinating problem when you're pairing, right, is you might, like somebody might be typoing or someone might be like, they might be like, they, they might be running into like, you know, the wall they're about to hit. They're about to fail this test in a way that like you see coming and you, you could choose to like intervene ahead of time. And sometimes you, sometimes you just need to get work done. So you do intervene ahead because you're always balancing that. But sometimes you do just need to let them hit that wall and like struggle a little bit before you, so that they can feel that pain before you suggest, Hey, Actually, I think dependency injection might be a better solution to this, or I think your mocks might be in the wrong way. And just being able to like, because like being able to, rather than just front introducing that concept before they solve, understood the problem needs to be solved, I think it's like a, it's a more advanced pairing technique, but I think it's something that once you can feel comfortable to have that space, that uh, it allows for a lot more growth. Yeah, and I think that even in shops that don't do pairing per se as a standard, we all pair to some degree. You know, for example, whenever I would create a new feature or a new feature was requested, 
we would, the developers, we would get together and kind of just hash through its architecture. Like, what's the end result going to look like? What kind of structure are we wanting? What kind of database schema changes are we going to make? And kind of talk through all the things like that. But we wouldn't actually do the pairing because, you know, a lot of it can just be bootstrapping and pointless work. Not pointless, but uh, just tedious work. Yeah. And I think I agree that definitely like during the setup process of some projects and uh, there are definitely times in a project where if, like if like because there are, yeah, uh, yeah, not like pointless, but like you're right, like the, there, there's infrastructure set up or there's like there's like the conventions and stuff that you kind of have to set up in a new project or in in like the first phase of a project. And that may be an indeed a time where I might ag- agree that, okay, let's split like oftentimes when in those kind of situations in a full-time pairing environment, that's when I'm gonna be like, hey, can we just split up and divide and conquer for a bit? We we just need to like we're upgrading from Rails four to Rails five and a bunch of just these tests are failing and we know exactly we just have to copy paste fix all of these tests. Uh, is it but like let's why well, you take this half and I'll take this half. Being explicit about when there's like a situation like that, I think is and I think it's totally fair to be that like that's not a situation where pairing necessarily gives you the benefit that you want. There's also another scenario which I kind of was thinking as Dave was kind of talking, which is maybe you have a new feature or something that's a little larger than some others, right? Or it's it's kind of like a new, I don't know, a module or a new place in the app altogether, yeah. right? And you're just kind of discussing this new thing. And so you all get up on the whiteboard together, maybe draw out what your schema is, yap, you know, about how you think you're going to solve it, you know, stuff like that, right, for a while. Does that look the same in a pairing environment? Is that something that you do as well? Or does it look different because you're pairing and so... I think it can look very similar. I oftentimes do make sure that there's like a whiteboard accessible for like, like we're like we start like trying to go into the nitty gritty and we realize we need to take a step back and think about the architecture for a second so that we can think under at least have a shared understanding of the architecture we want to go towards. And definitely, I think there's still room and space for the like, even in the, even in I like adult, like when we were dealing with like the healthcare and like adding new features, we there would definitely still be need for like. Okay, actually, I think this is something where we need everyone to be on board with this. Let's have a let's have a meeting to like uh, hash it out for like thirty minutes. Okay, that seems reasonably similar. Yeah, it, it's very similar. So there's definitely some some pitfalls to me. So I've used pair programming in the past, right? As kind of like a okay, maybe this particular thing is harder, or I specifically know we're tackling this one problem. And I know it's going to be tough. And so I'm going to have to go through a lot of explanation and code review. And maybe I just want to have somebody with me the whole time, right? So that we can both agree on a thing, right? So I found it a useful technique for that. But I've blundered through it in the past, right? And you actually list a number of techniques here. Can you talk about like good ways to do this, you know? Yeah, and I, I and think... Uh, why yeah, like, pick one? My, my, like, my preferred way currently is ping pong pairing because like, it also helps facilitate test-driven development where basically you write like one pair writes a test and then the other pair solves that test and then writes the next test and then passes it on to you who solves that test and then writes the next test and you kind of go back and forth between that and get into like a rhythm. And I, I like that because yeah, A, right, that makes, by writing the test, by te- having tests first be part of that pairing process, it also facilitates good test-driven development, which I love. And also, yeah, it gives an explicit space for what, like, a lot of the techniques are around, like, when am I switching and being, like, more explicit about that. So that way, 
there's less of a concern that like keyboard hacking is occurring. Do you feel um, like that gives you good momentum? I, I often feel like it does when it's possible. There's definitely like situations where it's not possible. And so then we have to kind of pick a different strategy. Also remote, I feel like ping pong doesn't work as well. And I end, end up having to settle for driver driver navigator in, in remote with like an explicit, okay, we're going to, we're going to switch from sharing from your machine to our, my machine in like an hour. Okay. Uh, yeah. And egg timers are something else that I found are very useful for when you're doing. So driver navigator being uh yeah, driver being the person who's like, actually executing the co- like executing and writing the code and the navigator being the person that's looking for high level concerns or pointing out like oh hey you mistyped that or hey there's this bug or there's this issue coming up ahead that we need to think about and so taking explicit turns between driver and navigator is also useful so like hey there's like an egg timer or some kind of automated time like there's a lot of good plugins for that now too where you can just like switch between like set it set it to like notify you as the ping in 30 minutes so it's not as obnoxious as an egg timer dave you I think you mentioned doing some of this sporadically as well. Like I've mm-hmm. used driver navigator techniques pretty much. That's pretty much only been the only pairing technique I've ever used. Yeah. Uh, the techniques I've used in the past were mostly like a divide and conquer. So we would use the extensions of our editor. So both of us were working off of the same computer, essentially. So all the code base was on one computer. And we were able to both be typing at the same time in the same file or within different files. It doesn't matter. And we would just kind of be walking through and talking. And I would even do a split screen where I would follow that developer. So as they're typing or navigating between different files, I would see that on one side of my screen while I'm working on my side. And I found that to be the most efficient way because that way we're both getting our full throughput of getting the coding done. But then also we were able to talk about things on like, hey, by the way, what about this situation? Or how should we handle this use case? And I found that to be more efficient when you had essentially two mid-levels or two senior levels pairing together. But I think in a junior slash senior pairing level, then it is going to be more important to have a driver navigator style. Ian, does that fit any of the the things that you... I I think that does fit a lot of the things, especially you can like... I find the stru- the structure I think is definitely like more useful in a specific environment. Like yeah, like if you have a junior junior dynamic or a junior senior dynamic, that's where I think having very explicit structure is useful as kind of like guardrails. Whereas yeah, like in a senior senior situation or a mid mid situation, I've found that you can be a little more informal. Yeah, being able to like like that kind of divide and conquer technique. I haven't used that before, but uh, that kind of sounds similar to feeling a little more loosey goosey about like okay, yeah. We're kind. We're almost ping ponging, but we're like going a little, being a little more liberal about who's on the keyboard right now because we're just kind of like talking through this together rather than, and that we can see that. I think that's kind of similar. Yeah, it struck me that way too, right? That it's it's more like two people working right next to each other, which is its own kind of value. There was one last technique that you mentioned on here, Safari. Can you so, talk through that as well? Yeah. So I think uh, there can be situations where somebody, right, has done some pre-work or has like more of the domain knowledge and being kind of explicit about like, I'm just going to take you a tour through the code and you're kind of going to be more like just on this journey with me rather than it being like, 
a little more directed than like say a driver navigator where you're hopefully trying to like work together on the problem and somebody's more like i'm dragging you along for a bit so that you can keep you can catch up gotcha okay that makes sense and like and if you're explicit about that that can be a good technique for like helping like even in a senior senior situation for someone who's like i'm not familiar with this part of the code base and can you help me like get get me up to speed yeah i feel like that's uh I mean, I've definitely used a similar technique, right, to I've used and it's been used with me uh, for, okay, I'm getting onto a new project or somebody else is coming onto a new project and we're just talking through it with each other. So makes sense. Yeah. We didn't yeah. call that pairing, but okay. You know, I think my main aversion to pair programming is that it is a tool. It's a tool for multiple people to come together mm-hmm. and to solve a singular task. But I think in organizations where they only do pair programming, then they are misusing the tools. I think that there are some tasks which should be marked as this is a pair programming task and other tasks should be a solo task where no other outside involvement other than a code review is needed. Yeah, and I I do think that there's definitely tasks that should be explicitly marked that way. I think... One thing I've seen in the past is explicitly is around uh, when you're like researching or explicit research, like spiking, as sometimes it's called. That you, when you have like the, that kind of work explicitly set out, that you're comfortable that that one person's going to take it and come back with results about what they found out with their research. Are oftentimes there's a lot of like at Backerkit, there's a lot of we do a lot of one-off tasks for customer requests. And oftentimes those were explicitly like, hey, we don't need two people to sign off on like doing this routine chore. Go ahead and like, yeah, just these are like the, the, what the, the person who is solo will can go just go crank out. So it sounds like you do sort of have division amongst yourselves, but maybe you default to pair programming is kind yeah. of what it sounds like. Yeah, it's, it's like we prefer pairing on like new work or on feature work, but there's definitely an explicit like there are things that do need to be done like bugs, troubleshooting, like where the, like, yeah, because those are, I was thinking of other examples where I think there's not a lot of value in pairing. Yeah, when you have stuff like customer requests that are like one-off, like you like are run, not, not writing any new code, but you're like just doing some console jockeying to get something done or bug hunting or like reviewing through bugs and trying to like figure out what's going on. Those tend to not, I don't think you get a lot of, usually you don't get a lot of value out of that. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. So since we're having this value conversation, you also discuss a little bit about mob programming in your in your mm-hmm. prep notes. Can you talk about that and maybe how it either breaks the value mold or or whether it's good? Yeah, I think mobbing used sparingly can be pretty useful. Most it's mostly in like a learning. Like it's definitely not like you're not getting. It's oftentimes you're not going to get a lot of work done parent mob programming because you're just just too many developers in the room for that to be possible. But as like a learning tool to kind of just like see different to understand people's different styles like in a whole room and see how it all stitches together. We've been kind of uh, like taking like a, a a feature that's already been done or a feature maybe that we want to do some re- group refactoring. And just kind of like cutting aside like an hour or two in like a month and like doing uh, a mob, like a facilitated mob programming. I think in, the, in an environment where you have like, you definitely need a facilitator though, because like otherwise, like you're not going to get any like anything done or on keep on task because there's too many voices in the room. But 
you can I think mobbing as is like let's like review this together or like come to a shared understanding about a topic, I think can be a useful thing. So does that mean that you feel like the experiment is is yielding results then? Yep. Like that it's working in certain ways? In certain ways, in terms of like helping understand people's thought processes and like being able to expose people to like a different way of thinking about a certain problem or about exploring a, a topic. I think, as I, but I've also seen situations where it hasn't worked where there's just been too many voices in the room or just kind of things have grinded to a halt and like two people are basically contributing and no one else is. Interesting. So yeah, doesn't sound and quite as solved. Go ahead, Dave. One interesting thing about pair programming is that it almost forces you to enhance your soft skills, so to speak. Because if you have problems communicating concisely, clearly to your peer, then you're going to hurt the efficiency of that team. So I think that from that perspective, it does help shape a developer, make them more well-rounded to be able to engage in conversations with other developers on a particular task. Totally. That, like the, I definitely feel like that's been a lot. A lot of the growth is like, yeah, it's like soft skills, like giving and receiving feedback. I think I've been able, like that has, that as a skill has like really developed over the course of having to pair program for like seven or eight years straight. Um, and so that has been kind of like a cool thing to see develop where before, like, like in the, I definitely remember like the first, I had ThoughtWorks conversations where people were like, Ian, I'm trying to give you this feedback so you can improve. And like, you're resisting it right now. Like, I'm not, I'm not trying, I'm not telling you this to make you mad. I'm telling you this to make you grow from there to like now it's just like it's like a cool thing to see yeah i was gonna say too like i know that it's definitely part of my growth right to specifically that sort of social negotiation that you're doing when you're when you're programming with somebody because it forces you to do it so much all at once that's really good teaching you you know maybe you know what it's totally cool that my pair likes to do this you know has a different style than i do right you you kind of decide which things you really want to fight about and which things you don't, things like that. So, yeah, I, I agree. Like the soft skills thing is pretty, pretty awesome. I think it's also important, you know, and this kind of goes out of the scope of pair programming, but for the particular project that you're working on, to have a definitive set of guidelines for styles. Yeah. So that way it's not a combat between the two different people pairing, but instead you're following the guidelines. So, you know, use guard clauses instead of a bunch of if statements or something like that, just as a standard practice for this project. Because I can see where you might have two pairs kind of like fighting for the same thing, but two different approaches that are both equally justifiable and equally good and they both accomplish the same end result but just two different approaches that's definitely an interesting tension and one way we try and solve that is through like having an explicit uh, meeting once once a week where if there was like an issue that was found during a, a particular pairing session that we kind of try and norm on it during like through like a dev chat discussion with like all the developers on our team which is only like four or five or backer kit but just being able to like have like a team norm basically like, for example, we were having, like, there was a conflict between a pair about we were uh, making a new onboarding flow. One developer was just kind of like, I just, we don't know what's going to happen yet. I'm just going to, like, throw all of the onboarding routes onto, like, one or two controllers, like, not restful at all because we're just still, like, in a non-deterministic state. 
or the, the other developer was like, no, I just want to make, I believe in restful routes uh, like basically all the time. And I want to make sure that that's like the standard we're doing. And, and honestly, I think given the unknowns, yeah, I think both routes were relatively equalish in value, but we were able to at least come to some kind of consensus about like, okay, if, we're, if, if the pattern had started to emerge this way, let's just continue that pattern. And then, and being able to like, and having a, a good discussion where we acknowledge like, hey, either of these are legitimate, but like, let's just, if there's a pattern emerging, just follow that pattern. If that's like, there's like a significant reason not to. I think that's a really interesting story because I'm, I'm actually kind of curious, like, what did you end up doing, right? Like, and how did you sort of, um, how did you make the other guy feel like he was heard, right? Or gal, whoever it was. The part of it was about like ha- like facilitating the discussion and talking both like enumerating the merits of both approaches, and the, and like the trade offs that you're making because right like any everything's about the trade offs you're making, and in that situation we rec- uh, I think I recognized that like the the other person was really passionate about those restful routes and they weren't going to get in the way for now, so just to, like okay we had started to kind of push that pattern, let's just go ahead and like continue that pattern for now. And then we can always revisit that if it turns out to be like not not it turns if that turns out we need to do something else. And I think being able to acknowledge, but then, and there's also been situations with that developer where I've been able to say like, "Hey, can you suspend your disbelief for a moment? That let's let let's try and like just go down this different route, and we can always like re- like leaving the space for being able to say we can come back to it, or we can make a tr- we can make a chore or a story to acknowledge that we need to come back and refactor this later." Fair enough. So it sounds like it was. It was a difficult uh, thing, but you managed kind of thing. So in my experience, this kind of thing happens like all the time, right? Where I have beliefs in certain things, you know, maybe, maybe I'm somebody that's like, oh, you know what? I really love service objects. Everything should be a service object, right? I, I'm not, but, you know, or maybe I have like sort of the opposite bent so that they shouldn't happen. I actually was, was less talking about, you know, whether I should have tabs and spaces, though I suppose that's possible. But with those like higher level, more algorithmic level decisions, right? How is, how are you, are you always punting those to the end of the week? Like, I guess maybe I'm more curious, Mm. like how did that pair solve it at the time? Or did they say, oh, we have to wait till Friday to talk about this with the whole group? Yeah, that's a great question. I think in that situation, one of the pairs just deferred to the other pair and then just like, but then brought it up to revisit it. And I think kind of, as in like, they like went with one of the approaches like the approach of the person, like and oftentimes I think, and something to watch out for is definitely the more stubborn pair oftentimes wins those discussions, I've noticed. Yes. Uh, w- one thing that I have done to help out with that is that I, I, I'm, I'm a pretty big believer in time boxes where if you can show me that this solution can work in like 30 minutes to an hour, or et cetera, or like whatever reasonable time box is appropriate, that I can be willing to like try that out and see how that works. And then that that leaves me the space to prove like my like oh maybe I thought service object wasn't relevant for the situation but it turned out to actually be really useful or no I still it just still doesn't feel that way and then that way you can at least and that I think gives the space for the other developer to be heard by taking the time to go down that route that makes uh, sense yeah it it does take more time to do that as a trade off because like right because if you choose to back out of that decision that means you spend an hour on that but uh, I think it can be worth it. To really, in order to really be able to make sure both developers are heard in the situation. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I was going to say, uh, especially since you brought up the the idea of like the more stubborn person like winning most of the time, is my way of solving that has been that whoever sort of like 
So there's always somebody like that has the idea, right? There's sort of the positive case. Yeah. Whoever is trying to say, oh, no, that's a dumb idea or like sort of the negative case, they have to, I feel like it's sort of like the responsibility of that person to prove, right, why it wouldn't work or, or yeah. you know what I mean? So I always, I always put the onus there. That's kind of been my thing. But that makes sense. That's actually, it's a, a thing that I think is dealt with. So you run into that problem in code review too, right? Like that's yeah. not just impairing. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and I definitely think that's it's like half people problem, right? Because like people are attached to ideas that they have, and being able to if you can associate disassociate that and start just just to focus on the idea and the implementation trade offs, then I think that can help too. It's it's definitely a thing in general where you kind of have to just ex- acknowledge whether like where there's trade offs or where just whatever is going to be the like. Oftentimes, if you have a time constraint, that can help too. With like acknowledging, like, hey, maybe the solution would be cool if we had the time for it, but we don't. And let's revisit that later. You know, I think it's also important to note that just because you're pair programming, having more eyes on the same piece of code, that doesn't resolve you from having to scope out requirements yep. for a particular feature. Because I've found myself in that situation. So, you know, hypothetical, let's say if you're working on a microservices application in its true form where you have a bunch of different small projects that all combine work as one, and you have a new feature which warrants a new microservice, well, what language do you write it in? Do you do it in Go? Do you do it in Python, Ruby, JavaScript, via Node, or what? Hmm. And I think that leaving those kind of decisions up to a two-pair team is dangerous. Yeah. I think those kind of architectural decisions need to happen before that story ever comes down to a pair. I, I totally agree with you. And I think, yeah, decisions like, like even decisions about like which microservices you're, you're uh, split, how you're, how you're choosing to split up if you're like going down that kind of road, you really do need to have that kind of planned out before. Like, I think like the responsibility of the pair, I think is definitely not about like higher level decisions. I think those definitely, there needs to be a different space for that. And, Certainly, we've had we've had to carve our own space out for that, even on like full time full time pairing shops. I, I think another interesting thing you kind of allude to is when when making decisions like like the language and stuff. I think that really has to be something that's like a team normal like that's like yeah like the organization has made a decision here and the organization needs to make that call. There's no there's no one else that should be and and it definitely should be enforced as like a, I'm a big believer in I yeah, like consistent language and stuff but like if you're going to give the space for a specific different language to be trying out that really does need to be vetted at that higher level yeah i think i think the division of labor right between what is an implementation detail and what is an architectural decision that should happen at a higher level is just a hard problem yeah and we sometimes incorrectly distribute the work to the wrong place that totally happens like letting pairs pick their own language (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah it can be dangerous. Totally agree. So we've talked a bit about pairing. Are there some things that like we're missing or anything else that you, like you wanted to jump in? Oh yeah, like, I kind of relate. I mean, it was definitely talked alluded to in like the the lightning talk I gave. But yeah, being able to have like a pairing checklist or having like specific processes that you've agreed upon beforehand, I think can help a lot with those kind like the emotional situation piece of things. Like we have one at at a backer kit and I've been really happy with like that it really has helped make sure that pair retros happen which is I think something that's also really critical for like again all about that feedback loop can you um, define that really quick so a pair retro is like a pair retrospective basically at the end um, not every day but 
almost every day we'll check in with each other about like how did the pairing session go and whether like what were difficult times during that like when were there pain points during that session and are there ways that we can avoid those pain points in the future or like what are the things that we could learn yeah or were there learning opportunities that were had that we get like learn something from or oh we can do this differently next time when we come across this problem what does your pairing checklist look like then let me pull it up one second here <laughs> So it looks like kind of uh, there's like a first like a check-in just feeling-wise, just how people are feeling today, like to acknowledge if like somebody's like tired or otherwise not in a situation where they're going to be able to be a full pair. And then agree on the high-level goal. What do we want to do? What do we want to get out of today's pairing session? Do we want to get stuff done? Do we want to learn about a new feature or technology? Do we want to lear- learn, give space for learning? And then making sure that there's no planned interruptions and establish like a specified stop time and leave time for the re- the mini retro at the end and uh, creating a task list for any of the stories if relevant and being like a, bef- like before we just jump right into the story and then um and deciding on pairing style for the day okay and that seems reasonable to me i as somebody that's always just jumped in in the past and kind of pulled it as a tool i can see some value in to act in actually like planning it out beforehand yeah, I think it just helps with like, yeah, giving like some mind, just, it's just kind of mindfulness, right? Because like a lot, because again, like, right, because a lot of pairing is soft skills as well. I think just having some reminders of some like the, the specifics of those soft skills can help people who maybe not be in the right mindfulness setup to be refreshed in that. And then, and then for the reflection, there's also some like some suggestions like, how are we feeling about the days going? What would make the rest of the day 10% better? Yeah, what were pain point like? What, when was there a difficult time in the pairing session, and just kind of being able to reflect in that way? So you, you also say here that that you you had a pairing interview as a junior dev that didn't go very well. Do you want to talk about that and 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 where you are in comparison with that? Uh yeah. Today? So it was a for ThoughtWorks actually, where they were suggesting different ideas around testing, but also around uh, formatting because um. I think at the time I was very uh, haphazard in my pairing style or in my coding style. So I think I think I was using the wrong case in the Ruby code. I think because like, I think I probably I think so I was probably using Camel case when it should have like I think Snake case is kind of the the Ruby standard. I might flip them, but there was a lot of suggestions or correction. There were a bunch of corrections in that regard, and I just got like really upset about that and kind of ended up not listening to like anything one of the interviewers was saying because like I was like. Why are they commenting on my like coding style? This is so dumb and pointless. Like it's all about the code you implement and not anything about the styling or the look. And that was kind of where my headspace was at the time. And just like thinking about like, like wow, like, this is not a good way to react in an interview. And I didn't like say, exactly say those things, but I think it was it was it was very clear because they asked about it when in like the follow up to the interview. And like and it kind of and then ended up giving them a perception that I wasn't listening to that person. So like what I was I having a problem with that person and with her in general? And like that made me feel really bad about realizing like I'm like, oh shit, like that could have like I I gave off a way different vibe than I was meaning to. And also that like not being receptive to that, sure, like maybe maybe it's not like the highest value feedback, but there's still definite like still definitely a need for like a, a common styling is a thing that like if you don't have that, then you're going to have those conversations forever. And that's, that's, like, that's why you, stuff like RuboCop exists to kind of at least give some kind of <laughs> safety rails so that we're not having the commas versus tabs versus spaces levels kind of discussion. So how did, how did you rescue from that? Did you just kind of 
yeah i like i kind of like apologized and was like i i like i real I, that was like the first start of that growth of like realizing like oh like just because they were giving commentary and i should have acknowledged it at least even if i wasn't going to like and i think there was enough of the recovery in the rest of the interview that i ended up actually still getting the offer but i definitely think that was like a contention point i imagine and why they took they took a while to get back to me sure it sounds like it sounds like you came a long way from there though yeah, and I definitely think, um, yeah, again, like being able to understand, like, like, right, like being able now to be at the space where I'm like, okay, let's give you the hour to try that thing out, or being like, okay, cool, like, yeah, that's, uh, let's do that style fix. And at this point, I'm very, I'm a very kind of hands off kind of person where there are some certain, like, certain high level things that I will be picky about, and definitely want to make sure we're test driving things, but definitely around like naming or like. Oh, you think there's a better name for that? Great. Or I see you're not liking the name I made. Do you have a better name? Let's let's do that. Like I'm happy to like just you know change the name of this this file or this feature or this class because if you can give a more intention revealing thing, like please help me. And trying to like identify those pain points and help help the other person kind of move along on their journey because I think that's again and that part of the being able to have a lot of personal growth was just being able to be adjacent to a lot of senior devs pairing. And being able to like see, oh, oh, there's those are the shortcuts. Like, cause nobody ever talks about shortcuts, right? Or like little, like little compute, little like those little life hacks. It's like you don't explicitly go out to look for those, but like in pairing, you just get to see what other people do that are. That's like, oh, cool. I'm going to be using that shortcut now, or or cool, like that. That like technique is like a way, something that I will now start using in my own development. Yeah, I think if nothing else, pair programming for coming up with names and methods or classes is is pretty awesome. So I think that's one of the hardest part of programming is coming up with a relevant name for something. Yeah. Naming and caching, right? <laughs> <laughs> and if you're in the DevOps side, DNS. <laughs> so you have used some interesting anecdotes down here too. One of the things that you note that I think is definitely not even a problem. I'm sorry, it's definitely a problem, regardless of whether you pair program or not, is, mm-hmm. is basically kind of dealing with, uh, you say here, design tensions and working with people who plan differently than you. That's totally a thing, like regardless of whether you're pair programming, how does pair programming make that easier for you or not? I think it does a little bit because, you know, there are people that want to keep continuously refactor and make the, per- like, really, like, design the perfect object. And then there are people like, me who kind of just like what's the stu- what's the simplest thing that works what 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 can I ship right now that'll make the customer happier and be like happy with whatever result we get and so being able to like have different people in the room kind of to get kind of more closer to like the combination of like where it's not breaking fast you know not running fast and breaking things but running fast and shipping cool things you know like just like just that it helps I think with that extra level of like getting to a more complete solution to the problem Certainly, there's definitely still tensions with that and still definitely can be like, if you, I think it's a, it can get a bit to be a problem if you like end up telling a story about what the other developer is thinking instead of actually double-checking what they're thinking. But yeah, the, the fact that like when you're pairing that like whatever decision you're making, you need to get another person on board, I think helps, I think, with a little bit of checks and balances. Whereas versus in the discuss, like a discussion can just get heated and very abstract. Whereas, like, right, when you're pairing, you're always like, you're actually trying to get the next piece of work done. Yeah, you've already started to create a, a coalition or, you know what I mean? A collective decision kind yeah. of is starting to happen. It makes sense. Was well, there anything else that we should talk about? Or is that pretty much all there is with pair programming? 
I think I think something interesting is like the hire the hiring process because like right like not everyone pair like I think it's I don't know what the statistic numbers are on it but definitely like when I go to I've gone to like pairing enthusiast like it's while it's definitely evolved since like you know ten like since the beginning of XP it's still pretty not like not a super common practice and definitely like full time not like a common practice for sure and so just kind of interesting to see okay like both like the accidentalness of happening to find full-time shop to full-time shop, but also like make like hiring it like at Amata Health, like the where, where I used to work for, they like basically were trying to triple their engineering team and trying to do that while maintaining like a pairing environment. So like sounds like it just it's so fascinating. Like because like they're definitely having to hire non-pairers. And as sure there's like a certain level of ability for like a certain level of de- number of senior devs to onboard new or new people onto a pairing style, but it feels like that's going to be like a thing that will cause like a cultural problem shift where if you brought enough non-pairers onto the team, they're going to also not want to pair all the time. So. So did you see that out to the end and see what happened? No, nah, I'm still waiting for updates. Unfortunately, okay. I did not. Jury is still out. Jury still out. I am surprised though. Uh, something that is. So at first people were like, oh, there's not pairing resources. And I was like, and I had told myself the narrative that they're not, there's not pairing resources out there. But I definitely like in researching for this, for this conversation, there's like a lot of stuff out there now, at least what I was starting to see. Like, right, like those, like the ThoughtWorks pairing pr- best practices. And I've seen some other best practices, like, like the tuple guide. There's definitely some really good guides out there now for like bringing people up to speed on like the terminology and like some of the uh, common problems and common misconceptions. I feel people are more receptive to it too, right? Even even in cases where people don't want to use that as a predominant tool, people are like, oh, it's a legit tool that I can yeah. have in my back pocket. Yeah, and that's the minimum I feel. It's kind of funny because when we talk about pair programming, the idea of pairing with someone else to accomplish a single task, it's not unheard of in other industries. You know, just go get your oil changed on your car at one of the 15-minute oil change places. You have one guy underneath the car draining the oil, another guy on the top side doing the level checks of your other fluids and stuff. So, I mean, it exists out there in the wild. It just seems like a... uh, I think Kent Beck originally coined the phrase pair programming, but he kind of introduced it into the development world. Yeah. Yeah. Any stories you want to share or anything else that you feel like we're missing? Definitely, yeah. Like, it's definitely like a powerful tool and certainly you don't need to be... Like, I love using it full-time, but I definitely recognize that it's not like... not. It's definitely not necessarily always the tool for the task. So, yeah. I think that's what part... How I feel about it. Well, Ian, if people want to follow what you're doing online or reach out to you, where should they go? I do have a, a Twitter, Profit BRTHA. And then also I have a, I'm working on a cats game and it's got the, I've got a link to that. The can be resource below. And yeah, I think that, and I've got a GitHub. So if you can reach out to me there too. Awesome. Have you ever felt like JavaScript is just everywhere? Well, we have. We actually had a conversation on JavaScript Jabber about what you can build with JavaScript. We've also talked about what JavaScript is and how we're inspired by the language. If you're interested in JavaScript or are doing web development, then you definitely need to check out JavaScript Jabber. You can find it at javascriptjabber.com. All right, well, let's move on to some picks. John, do you want to start us out? Yeah, I actually have two picks here. So I... I'm actually a pretty avid, I have been all my life, an avid book reader. 
and and so I wanted to start going through some of some of the books or whatever, some recent and some that I haven't read in a long time. But I figured I would kind of like roll out with like my all time favorite. So this is this is actually a whole entire book series or whatever that I read. I don't know. I probably read this like 10 years ago for the first time. Or I read the first book in it 10 years ago for the first time and I didn't. I didn't realize it was a series or anything like that. Anyway, but it's it's called Codex Alera. And I guess so it's written by a guy named Jim Butcher who writes some other stuff that I think is pretty awesome, actually. But anyway, he apparently he wrote the series on a bet with a friend that he could write a book series basically that his friend could give him two random topics and he could write a book series. So his friend basically told him to write a book series on on like the Romans and Pokemon. So as you like read the series, you could totally see where that kind of comes in or whatever. But it's just, it's one of the fastest like flowing book series that I've just ever read. It is a fantasy genre stuff thing, but it just goes really fast. It feels like candy, but he's one of the better writers, I think, of our time. Like good character development, it's pretty complex and you start out seeing like this really small view of the world and and it just kind of like grows through the whole big series. It's really cool. Anyway, so throwing that out there. And the second thing that I wanted to throw out there, so my son recently got into I I don't know exactly why, but you know, he's like three and a half. He decided he was interested in planets. So, you know, we're checking out like every planet book there is from the library and all these things. <laughs> Anyway, so, you know, just throwing it out here for like simple toys, but like that paper towel roll is like an awesome telescope. And anyway, my son asked me to draw like all the planets on it and I did. And that has been his favorite toy for like three weeks now. Um, nice. Yeah. It, I don't know. Whatever. It's fine. It's kind of cute. Uh, it's whatever. But like mm. it cost me 30 minutes of my time to draw some circles. I'm not that good of an artist and color them in and yeah anyway it's thrown out there for simple toys sweet all right i'll jump in with a couple of picks in the spirit of pair programming the one pick i'll pick for vs code extension is called live share and it allows you to simultaneously work with multiple people using their own VS Code. So they have their own extensions, their own environment that they're familiar with, but you are simultaneously working off of one code base. So that's a really cool one. And my other pick is more of a life hack or a quick trick. But the backstory for this is my son recently discovered that sheetrock or drywall, if you throw something at it, it'll break it. And then you get all of this fun little dust stuff that comes out of it. So in his room, while he was taking a nap the other day, and keep in mind, he's only five, he put a hole in our drywall, and then he started to excavate it with his play tools. So the hole just kept growing, growing bigger and bigger. And funny enough, he said, oh, dad, that's been there for a long time. As I see, like all the drywall dust, like meshed into the carpet. <laughs> yeah. But I found this easy life hack on fixing drywall super quick, super fast. And it's been the best quality job. You essentially get a hole saw, you drill it into a spare piece of drywall, you then cut a square around that hole, and you just break out 
the excess drywall piece. So you still have that back tape. You wet it down, fill in the hole with some drywall putty on the wall. You put that on there and smooth it out and it creates a seamless patch. So I will link a video on this guy on how he did it in the show notes. But yeah, it's definitely an amazing trick if you have kids. Nice. Ian, do you have any picks for us? I think just for any kind of follow-up, the Martin the Martin Fowler article on pairing, I think is just a good follow-up read as far as the pick. Well, Ian, I appreciate you coming on and talking with us today. And I guess we'll uh, talk to you later. Yeah, thank you. Uh, it was great. Yeah, thanks. We'll talk to you all later. Bye. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.